Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. My name is Byron, and I get the great privilege to serve here as the lead pastor, and it's my joy and it's my honor to be able to preach to you today on Easter Sunday, because today is the most important day. It's the most significant day. It's the one day that changes everything, because this is the day that Jesus Christ, he resurrected from the grave, and Jesus is alive. And so I'm going to preach the Bible today, and I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1, and here's what my sermon title is. I bet you'll never guess it. He is risen. risen. I was just seeing if you guys are still with me. So great job for you guys. And so we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul, and we're going to see as the Apostle Paul teaches his church about the importance and the significance and the reason for Easter Sunday. And he's going to teach his church, and so we're going to lean in, we're going to listen, we're going to learn from the words of the Apostle Paul about what happened on that very first Easter. Here's what the Apostle Paul tells us. I'm going to read it all. We're going to make a couple observations, and then I want to be able to give you five reasons we believe in the resurrection. So here's what Paul starts by saying. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. He starts off by saying that he is going to remind them, because the truth is that we've all probably heard this sermon before. Growing up in Southeast Texas, you probably are very familiar with this story. None of y'all woke up this morning and you're like, hmm, I wonder what that preacher guy's going to talk about. <laughs> oh, I bet he's going to talk about when Jesus beat death. I, I've heard that sermon before. You've heard it before, but you need to be reminded. Why do we need to be reminded? Because we're so quick to forget that in our everyday life, The busyness, the hurry, the worry, the bills, the kids, marriage, relationships, stress, all of that things, it begins to pile up on us. It begins to build up and we become overworked and overwhelmed. We become frustrated, tired and exhausted. And what tends to happen is the greatest story becomes just another story. And the greatest day becomes just another day. And the greatest event becomes just another event. It's something that we plan for. We look forward in the calendar. We got to go to Target and clothes for the kids. And we get dressed. And they got the bunny. And they got the basket. We got to take the cute pictures for the Instagram. And then maybe afterwards, we'll go get brunch. And what happens is the most important day becomes just another day. And we tend to forget the significance of what Jesus actually accomplished on this day. For the Corinthians, they had heard this before. And for you here at Redemption, you probably heard this before, but guess what? I'm gonna tell it to you again because you need to be reminded. Some of you, you grew up in the church, that you were raised by praying parents and grandparents. You went to Awanas, right? You went to Royal Rangers. You went to the youth camp. You came down forward when they gave the altar call. You raised your hand. You prayed the prayer. They bopped you on the head. You got saved, maybe even got your prayer language, and you just continue to grow, and you've been in the church your entire life. You need to hear this again. You should never get tired of hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And then others of you, you come here today, and you're, you're not Christians, Maybe this is your first time, or maybe this is your first time in a long time, and you came here today because you were invited by a friend. Everybody has that one friend, and they just keep inviting you to church. They're like, hey, would you like to come to church with me? And you're like, no. (laughs) 
And they're like, well, I'm just going to keep asking you. And so, hey, would you like to come to church with me? You're like, no. Would you like to come to church with me? You're like, no. You're like, would you like to come to church with me? You're like, what did I tell you yesterday? Uh, you said no. Then that's my answer. No. And then eventually, they just started bothering you so much. You were like, please, just leave me alone. If I go to church with you on Easter, will you just stop asking me? And they're like, yeah, I think that we could do that. And then here you are. Okay, welcome. I want you to know it's partially my fault. Okay. <laughs> Because for the last month, as a church, we've been praying for, and I've been challenging our entire church to reach out and to invite three people to Easter Sunday, and you were one of the ones that they chose. So there you go. Welcome. We love you. We're glad to have you. You probably know this story. You probably heard this before, but I'm going to tell it to you again because you need to be reminded. He says, I'm reminding you of the gospel that I preached to you. That word gospel, it means good news that the gospel of Jesus, the life, death, burial, resurrection, who Jesus is, what Jesus does, how Jesus lived, and how that changes who we are and how we live, that is the good news. It's not just true news, it's also good news. That it's good news for those who believe in it, hope in it, place their trust in it. It's the gospel about the person of Jesus. So he says, I'm going to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and in which you are being saved. The truth is, we need to be saved. The truth is, is that we need to be saved because you and me and every single person in this room, in this world are sinners. We have separated ourselves from God. We're bent in, broken, fallen, fractured, flawed. We have not lived as we ought to live. We have not done as we have ought to done, that we are enemies of God, destined to live a life of wrath, separated from him, and a passion for eternal hell from him. The truth is, is that we need to be saved and that no one is righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. And so here's what God does. God seeks after us and that God sends his son, Jesus, from heaven to earth on a rescue mission to be able to seek and to save the lost. That's you. That's me because we need a savior. And the good news is, is that Jesus is a savior. The good news is there is a way for your sins to be forgiven. His name is Jesus Christ. There is a way for your past to be erased. His name is Jesus Christ. There is a way for you to be redeemed. His name is Jesus Christ. There is a way for your shame to be removed. His name is Jesus Christ. There is a way for you to be restored and reconciled into a loving relationship with God as Father. And his name is Jesus Christ. And the good news is, is we have a Savior. Jesus saves and his name is Jesus Christ. If you hold fast to this word, not everybody will be saved. Not everybody is going to go to heaven. Only those who hold fast to this word of the gospel. Only those who put their hope in the gospel only those who receive the grace that God gives will be saved. He says, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's so much in this world that people believe that is just vain. 
that it's worthless, it's pointless, it's meaningless because it, it doesn't save. It doesn't lead towards salvation. It's religions that don't save. It's paths that don't lead to eternal life. It's, it's self-help, which is no help because in the end, it's just frustration and damnation. It leads not into true, genuine salvation. You need to understand this, that religion in itself does not save. Only Jesus saves. That, that wealth and health and education does not save. Only Jesus saves. Philosophy does not save. Only Jesus saves. Money does not save. Only Jesus saves. Being a good person, living a good life, doing good deeds does not save. The truth is, is that only Jesus Christ saves. So much of this world is taught and believed in vain. But there is a way for a person to be saved. There is a way for a person to receive eternal life. There is a way for a person to receive a new life, both now and forever, and it comes from one man. Paul's gonna tell us about the most important day, the day that changes everything. He's gonna tell us about the most important event. The world has never been the same since. He's gonna tell us about the most important person. Redemption, do you know who the most important person is? I'll give you a hint. It's not you. It's not me. The most important person who's ever lived, his name is Jesus. And Paul is going to tell us about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what it means for our life. Here's what he says. For I delivered to you of first importance. This is the most important thing. It is of first importance. Whatever you're reading compared to this, it doesn't matter. Whatever you're studying compared to this, it doesn't matter. Whatever you're working towards, whatever you're striving towards, whatever promotion you're hoping to get, whatever you are doing with the rest of your life, it doesn't matter compared to this because this is of first importance. And if you miss this, then you miss everything. This is of first importance. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is not just a word about God. This is the word from God. This is the scriptures. And this word tells us exactly who God is, what God does, and how God has saved us. From Genesis to Revelation, there's really only one story in this, and it's all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that God loves to save sinners, that God seeks after sinners, and that God sent his only son to die so that sinners could be saved. So the whole point and purpose for this book is to point to Jesus. He says that Christ died according with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared more to 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Jesus Christ is the most preeminent, the most prominent, the most important person who has ever lived in the history of this world. There is no one like him. There's never been anyone like him. There will never be anyone like him ever again. There is no one equal to him. There is no one beside him. There is no one peer to him. There is no one who is like Jesus Christ. 
At the turn of the millennium, Time Magazine did an article and it talked about how whether you believe in Jesus or not, you cannot deny that Jesus has had more impact and effect on all of human history more than any other person who has ever walked the face of this planet. Everything has been touched by the hand of Jesus from education, from healthcare, from wealth, welfare to science and to the arts. Everything has been impacted by the life of Jesus. That more songs have been sung to him, more books have been written about him, more paintings have been painted of him than any other person in all of human history. And that his death, burial, resurrection, Easter Sunday literally is the hinge in which all of humanity hangs upon. BC, before Christ, AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Jesus is the most important and his importance is not without significance nor reason. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you five reasons from the Apostle Paul that we believe in the resurrection. The first thing the Apostle Paul says is this, that Jesus is God. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ. If you're going to accept the real Jesus, I want you to accept the real Jesus. If you're going to reject Jesus, I want you to reject the real Jesus. I don't want you to come to him based upon your imagination, based upon a Jesus of your invention, nor of pop culture. I want you to understand who Jesus is according to the scriptures. And Jesus is the Christ. That word Christ is not Jesus's last name, right? It's a derivative title that Jesus assumes for himself, that he is Jesus the Christ. He is the holy one. He is the chosen one. He is the anointed one. He is the long-awaited Messiah that all scripture points towards, that all civilizations are looking forward, that he is the one that God has promised. And Jesus comes as God in the flesh. He enters into this world and he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Essentially, Jesus is God. And that's what Paul is saying here, that we believe in the resurrection, number one, because Jesus is God. But these aren't claims that Paul makes about Jesus. These are also claims that Jesus made about himself. Some of you have been told that Jesus never claimed to be God, but that's just not true. That over the life and ministry of Jesus, he publicly, undeniably, undoubtedly declared himself to be God. Jesus said it in a myriad of ways. And I'll give you a couple. The first way that Jesus claimed to be God is Jesus said this. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven. And one of the things I love about Redemption Church is we have people from all places, all backgrounds, all different walks of life. And being here in the center of the city, it really gives us an opportunity to reach all of Southeast Texas. And so anyone in Southeast Texas can make it here in about 20 to 25 minutes. So how many of you are from Orange? Right? We got a lot of Orange people. How many of you are from Beaumont? Right, lots of Beaumont. How many of you are from Lumberton, Nederland, Port Arthur, Groves? Welcome, we love you. How many of you would say, I'm from heaven? <laughs> exactly, you're like, my car don't get that type of gas mileage. I ain't making it here. <laughs> Jesus says, oh no, no, I came down from heaven. None of us would be able to make that claim, but that's a claim that Jesus makes about himself. Jesus also says, I am perfect. He says he's perfect and without sin. There's no fault, no flaw. There's no failure in him. None of us could ever say that. I, I definitely couldn't say that. There's too many of you who know me, right? My wife was in first service. She was laughing because she knows it's not true. Byron's definitely not perfect. Nobody would be able to say that. Jesus says, <clears throat> except for me, I'm perfect. 
go ahead and investigate my whole life. If there's anything you can find about me, just go ahead and bring that. And everybody's like, you know what? I don't think there's anything we could say. Like, yeah, you're pretty, pretty, pretty perfect. Jesus says, I am perfect. Now, for you and me, we would be able to understand that it's the people that we look up to, the people we love the most, it's because they're the most honest. So if you're going to trust or follow someone, you would follow someone who would admit their mistakes. You would follow someone who would say, you know what? I'm not perfect. I have made some mistakes, and I'm learning and growing from them, and I'm hoping that one day I could be a better person because of them. You don't follow someone who says, I'm perfect. No, that's not the people you follow. But Jesus says, that's not true. Like, I, 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 am, I am perfect. Right? And Jesus, he makes these claims about himself. And that's the reason why we believe it, because Jesus himself says, I am perfect. And he does it publicly, and nobody can make any accusations against him. And then the number three, the other thing Jesus says about this is he just flat out says, I am God. And a lot of different ways... Jesus repeatedly and emphatically declares that he is God. And you need to understand this, that Jesus was not murdered because of the things that he did. He was murdered because of the things that he said. Nobody had a problem with the things that Jesus did. So Jesus would preach and teach and heal and perform miracles. Nobody got upset about that. Like Nobody was mad that Jesus, that he fed 5,000 people with a Lunchable. Nobody was like, Jesus. Nobody was angry at Jesus because he healed the sick and turned water into wine. People love those things. They're like free healthcare and free booze. This is an amazing day. (laughs) Nobody was angry at Jesus for those things. They weren't mad about Jesus for what he did. They were mad at Jesus for what he said because Jesus said, I am God. The religious leaders, they hated him because of this, because he was dismantling their religious system. The Roman government hated him for this because he was placing himself above Caesar, which was not only their king, but he was also their God. And because of the claims that Jesus made, Rome and the religious began to work together and plot to kill, crucify Jesus Christ. Not because of the things that he did, but rather because of the things that he said. There's a story early in the Gospel of Mark where there's a man who's suffering, paralyzed, and his friends bring him to Jesus, and Jesus looks down him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders, they tear their clothes and they say, blasphemy. And they seek to arrest Jesus. And he asks them, why do you do this? And they respond by saying, and I quote, you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus claims to be God. And here's what you have to deal with. Either it's true or it's false. Either he's telling the truth or he's telling a lie. You must accept him or you must reject him. But just stop with this nonsense that he was a good person. He's either the God man or he is a liar. That's the only options that you have. You can either accept him or you can reject him. He is of first importance or is he of no importance, but you cannot be indignant towards him. Who is Jesus? That's the most important question that you will wrestle with in your life. Is Jesus God? Number one, we believe he is, that he is the Christ, and that's how he's able to overcome death, hell, and the grave because Jesus is God. The second thing he tells us is this. Not only is Jesus God, But Jesus also died. Jesus died. He says, Christ died. He's God in the flesh, entering into this world. And then we killed him. The Roman government and the religious leaders, eventually they do get their hands on Jesus. They are able to follow through with their plan. They arrest him. 
They have a false trial under the cover of night, and then they sentence him to his death. God became a man, and we killed him. Jesus died the most painful, brutal death known in the history of all of mankind. It was invented by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans. It was called crucifixion. In fact, a historian named Cicero wrote about 50 years after the death of Jesus. He was talking about crucifixion. He said, in fact, that crucifixion was so heinous that no decent Roman would be allowed to talk about it publicly because that's just how terrible it was. That the pain that a person endured through the crucifixion was so unbearable, they didn't even have language to be able to articulate it. So they had to invent a word, excruciating, which means from the cross. That language couldn't even describe it, so they had to make up a word. That's how painful, brutal, heinous the death that Jesus endured and the death that Jesus suffered. Jesus died on a cross. But his death didn't actually begin on the cross. It goes back just about a day or two before where Jesus, he is in a garden and he has been abandoned by his disciples who are sleeping. And Jesus gets down on his knees and he begins to pray and he begins to cry and he begins to weep and he begins to sweat literal drops of blood. He knew that this day was coming. He prophesied about it before. He said, the son of man will be betrayed, handed over, and then three days he would rise. Jesus over and over again predicted his own death and his resurrection. He knew the cross was before him and he still goes to it bravely. And in that garden, he's on his knees and he begins to sweat literal drops of blood. This is a medical condition that is known for only those who experience the most stress and duress and anxiety. Leonardo da Vinci, he wrote about it in his journals about French soldiers who were in, in the foxholes awaiting their death because they were losing. These are the types of situations that bring about this event. And then his disciple Judas comes and gives him a kiss on the cheek and betrays him, hands him over to the religious leaders and the Roman government. They bring him in the middle of night under the cover of dark and they begin to mock him, ridicule him, jeer him, spit on him, punch him in the face over and over again to where they blackened his eye, broke his nose, cracked his jaw, ripped his beard out with their bare hands. And they took a crown of thorns and said, you think you're a king, king of the Jews? And then they drove the crown of thorns into a skull, pressed it in, and the blood began to flow. For hours, he's just being jumped by an unruly mob. And then they take his body, and they take him, and they drag him, and they sentence him. And the first sentencing was for scourging. And what they would do is they have two Roman centurions and they would take a person's body and they would stretch it out to where every inch of their skin is exposed, tie them to a wooden stone. They would cuff them in, stretch them out. Then they'd take what is known as a flagellum. It's a cat of nine tails. It's basically a whip with a long handle to get some good torque and reach. And they'd have um, nine leather whips attached to it with bone, ball bearings, and a hook. And they would proceed to beat the man over and over and over again. The metal ball bearings would tenderize the flesh like meat, busting the capillaries, causing internal bleeding and hemorrhaging inside of the body. The bones would slice the skin where the blood would flow profusely, filleting it like meat, and then the hooks would dig into the flesh and then rip it off the bone. Most likely his back his muscles, his spine were exposed. One historian says it's not uncommon for the little hooks to catch under a rib, and as they rip it out, the hook would, the bone would fly across the crowd. 
This is what Jesus endured even before the cross. Most people say that the scourging is so bad, a person didn't even survive that. Most people didn't make it to the cross because they died right there on the whipping post. And after just being beaten over and over and over for hours, they take Jesus' body, most likely limp. They place a robe over him that they found on the ground just to mock him a little bit more. Then they place a Roman crossbar on his shoulders weighing upwards of 100 pounds and expected him to carry that the miles to the place of his own crucifixion, walking through the city shamefully, painfully, bloody, bleeding for everybody to see. Luke's gospel tells us that as he's doing so, he trips and he falls face first and the, the crossbar would have crushed his chest cavity. One author I was reading during my prep says that it was probably the same as a head-on car collision with no seat belt and then your chest right into the steering column. After all of that, Jesus falls. He stands back up, makes his way to the cross. They take his body as he's laying there, and they stretch his arms out as far as they can, dislocating the arms and the legs from their sockets and hip sockets. And then they take a nine-inch railroad spike, essentially, and hammer, and then they just drill it through the most painful centers of the human body, through the hands and the feet. One archaeology article I was reading says that they don't actually think they crucified through the feet anymore. They think it actually went through the ankle bone to where a person would hang by their Achilles tendon. They took the body, they lifted it up on the cross. There was a hole in the ground. And as they lifted it up, the cross would fall right into that hole. And under the weight, the whole body would hang. Most likely every single nerve and fiber in his being is on fire because of the pain that he would endure. Most people didn't die from the pain or the blood loss, though they actually died from asphyxiation. They would drown in their own bodily fluids. Their lungs would fill up, and a person would hang there and drown, unable to breathe. The person would also lose control of their bodily functions. Growing around the base of the, the cross would be a, a growing pool of urine and feces and vomit and blood and tears. And as Jesus is bleeding and sweating and crying, he looks down and he sees his mom. For those of you who are parents, especially moms, I want you to think about the day that your child was born. Do you remember when the doctor came and handed you the baby and you held for the first time and they stuck their little bitty hand out and they wrapped their hand around your finger? Now look up and see that hand nailed to a cross. It's Mary. Jesus is exposed naked in front of the entire crowd, watching him at eye level. And Jesus doesn't respond the same way that most people would respond. Most people would respond by cursing and mocking and, and spitting on them and, and jeering them and saying, you deserve this and I'm innocent and you don't, you, don't, you, you don't know what's going on. And they would try to advocate for themselves from the cross. Jesus doesn't say that. From the cross, Jesus says things like this. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says things like, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says things like, it is finished. And he breathes his last breath, and then Jesus dies. Jesus is dead. A Roman centurion comes along just to double check, takes a spear, shoves it up his side, punctures his heart, and as he pulls it out, the water and blood begin to flow. And Jesus most certainly, assuredly is dead. Jesus 
guys. And Paul says, I want you to remember this because Christ died. This is the good news. And you think, how in the world is this possible? How is it possible that this is good news? How could a Roman cross be good news? That we did the worst thing to the best man, that God came in the flesh and we killed him. We killed God. How in the world is this good news? Here's what the apostle Paul says. And it's so important I want you to be able to see this with your own eyes. Just look. He says, because Christ died, why? For our sins. For our sins. For our sins. He did all of that just for you. That he would go through all of that for you. Jesus died for our sins. The truth is, is that we are sinners that we deserve wrath, that we deserve hell, that we deserve death. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus comes and he dies the death that we deserve. He lived the life that you could never live. He was perfect in every single way. He was innocent. We are guilty. And Jesus trades lives with us. And on the cross where we deserve to die, Jesus stands in our place and he gives us grace and hope hope and mercy and redemption and Jesus died for our sins. What this means is that if you trust in him, that there is no more wrath left for you. The wrath was received on the cross in your place. This means if you place your trust in Jesus, there is no more death for you. Jesus died the death that you deserve. If you trust in Jesus, there is no penalty. There is no punishment. There is nothing but grace available for you because Jesus died in your place for your sins. That's why we call this the good news. Because it's what Jesus did for our sins. Only God can atone for sin. And Jesus is God. And Jesus, he died. That's why we believe in the resurrection. Jesus died. Following his death, here's what they do. They take his body off of the cross, and then they bury it. That's number three. Jesus was buried. They go and they bury the body, but Jesus was a poor man. He didn't have a place to be buried himself. He spent three years hanging out with fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes. He had no place to rest his head. He was a homeless Galilean peasant, and so he needed a place to be buried. And so a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich, successful, wealthy man that everybody in town knew who he was, donated his tomb to Jesus. They took his body off of the cross, wrapped it in about 100 pounds of spices and burial cloths. So think about it like an ancient Jewish mummification. And they laid it in the tomb. They rolled the stone over the tomb. And then the Roman government placed two guards outside of the tomb just so nobody gets any crazy ideas that Jesus is God. No funny business happening here. Roman soldiers right outside. Well, over the course of the weekend, a couple of Jesus' friends, they're called disciples, and two women, they, they go down to the tomb, and they want to be able to take care of Jesus' body and maybe put some flowers and put some spices down. They want to go pay their respects and remember their friend Jesus who died. And as they go down to the grave, they find something amazing. 
They find that the, the tomb is empty and the stone has been rolled away and the clothes are there and the, the Roman soldiers are gone. They've ran for their life and they look inside the tomb and it's empty. Jesus isn't there. Jesus is not there. Where is he at? I don't know. He's not here. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Jesus resurrected. Jesus rose. Jesus was dead. Jesus was buried. And then on the third day, Jesus rose. And the scriptures tells us that he would do it. Because Jesus conquered Satan. Jesus conquered sin. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered the grave. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus had no sin. And so death could not hold him. And Jesus is alive. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus. Everything Jesus said about himself is true and the resurrection proves it. Jesus said he was God, the resurrection proves it. Jesus said he was perfect, the resurrection proves it. Jesus says he come down from heaven, the resurrection proves it. Jesus says he could forgive sins, the resurrection proves it. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus, who he is, what he does, how he lived, and how he's still alive because of the resurrection. And this is one of the things that makes Christianity so unique. No other major world religion founder would be able to say or do these things. So, for instance, we think about how Jesus claims to be God. No other religious leader did that. Muhammad never said, I am God. The Buddha never said, I am God. Joseph Smith never said, I am God. Vishnu, Krishna, any other religion never said, I am God. Jesus, he says, I am God. It's different. It's unique. And you have to figure out what you're going to do with these claims, especially the claim of where Jesus is buried. Think about it. What do you do whenever you lose a loved one? You bury them. And you remember where they're buried so you can go visit them every year. And the people we love the most, the people we endear towards, the people who have the closest place in our heart, we, when they're buried, we go and we visit them, we take care of their grave, take care of their tomb, and we pay our homages and we pay our respects. And that's the same thing with every other famous person. And so you think about the famous people who have lived. Thing is, we actually know where they're buried at. So the first one here is Buddha. That is... Muhammad. That's the Green Dome. And it's a sacred place in Islam. And Muslims make the journey and pilgrimage there every single year. It's where he is buried. It's the, the Green Dome. The next one is of the Buddha. And that's in India. They built this on top of his ashes. And many thousands of years ago, there's a nice burial place for him. We know where Muhammad's buried. We know where the Buddha's buried. And then here's where Abraham's buried. It's called the Cave of the Patriarchs. It's in a town called Hebron. It's a large place. It's a very special place for those who are in the Jewish faith. And we know where the famous people are buried at. We even know where Elvis is buried at. Look at that. That's called Graceland. It's, he's still the king, rocking and rolling. Where's Jesus buried at? The answer is, we don't know. How is it possible that the person has made the most impact in this world how is it possible that we don't know where he's buried? How is it possible that there's four billion people on this planet who worship him as God and nobody knows where he's at? The answer is he didn't need it because he beat it. He didn't need the grave because he is risen. He borrowed that grave for three days. 
That's all he needed to accomplish what he wants to do in your life. Three days, Jesus was dead, Jesus was buried, Jesus resurrected. And you gotta figure this out because here's the deal, is that people knew where Jesus was buried at. Some people would say, oh, his disciples made this up because they missed him so much. That can't possibly be true because the Roman government would know where he's at. And they just spent three years trying to kill this guy. So they're not going to allow a rumor or a resurrection to come up. They would go get that body. They would present it to everybody else. And they would say, Jesus is dead. If you don't shut up, we're going to do the same thing to you. The religious leaders, they did the same thing. Somebody's got to find this body because we're losing credibility. Come on, we got to do something about it. They know where it's at. They would be able to stop it. Some people say that Jesus, his disciples, they made this up because they just hallucinated it. Now, listen, I've done drugs, a lot of drugs, and you don't need to go do them. I'll just tell you how this works. That's not how hallucinations work. People don't have shared hallucinations. It's normally just one guy in a trailer rocking back and forth. That's not... That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. They didn't just hallucinate this. And then some people, my favorite one was this. I was reading, and one of the arguments that, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead is what they said is that Jesus actually had an identical twin brother. <laughs> and that Jesus' brother was just hanging out, I guess, back at Mary's house in the extra bedroom and waiting for the day that his brother would be murdered. And then as soon as his brother's murdered, he jumps out and he's like, surprise, here I am. Now, what do you think is more plausible? That Jesus rose from the grave or he had an identical twin brother named Brian? What do you think it is? Okay, great claims cause for great evidence. And the evidence is for the resurrection. That Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and Jesus, he rose. The disciples, they knew where the tomb was. The women, they knew where the tomb was. Joseph of Arimathea, he knew where the tomb was. He knew where it was at. The Roman soldiers. The guards, the religious leaders, they knew where it was at, but they quit going there. You know why? Because Jesus isn't there. He rose. How do you deal with that? The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus. Everything he said is good. It's true. It's trustworthy. He lived. He died. He rose. And then number four, he appeared. That after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to crowds of people individuals, Paul's going to list them by name, times, places, crowds, upwards of 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. Here's, here's what he says. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, and those are the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared also to the apostles. Some of you are thinking right now, you're like, okay, Byron, this all sounds good and well, but I went to college, right? I, I got a degree. I watched a YouTube video. I've read a book. I think I'm kind of smart. And here's what I've discovered is that dead people normally don't get up. I'll give you that. It's weird. Okay? This is a very weird story. This is very unique. You're like, I just don't believe it because people don't just get up out of the grave. I know. That's why we call this a miracle. Right? If this happened all the time, it wouldn't be Easter. It would be Halloween. If people are just getting up out of the grave, <laughs> walking around, like that's not a reason to celebrate. That's a reason to buy a shotgun and go for the head. You don't do that. So this is very unique. 
It's never happened before. It's never happened again. That's why we worship him because he came back from, from the grave. But if you're a skeptic and you're wrestling and struggling with this, then you have, to, you have to wrestle with this. How do you account for this? See, the truth is, is that we don't believe in the resurrection merely because of faith. We believe in it because it's fact. It's not just speculation. It's not just theology. It's actually history. That Paul lists real people by their names. And he says to them, he says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, just go ask them. Most of them, they're still alive. You can still go and you can still ask them. This is documented history just a few years after the resurrection. You can go find them. The first person he says is go talk to Peter. Peter is a, a disciple of Jesus who during the course of his life, he was a coward. He ran away from a little girl. He denied Jesus as the savior. And then something incredible happened in Peter's life. After the resurrection, after encountering the Lord Jesus, he goes from a courage, he goes from a coward to being courageous. That Peter would stand up on Pentecost just 50 days later and he would publicly proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 3,000 people get saved. The church explodes. And then the Roman government comes to him and says, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, we're going to kill you. And this man who is afraid of a little girl stands in front of the Roman government and says, go ahead, kill me, bring it on. But I'm not going to stop talking about what I saw. Jesus is alive. He mentions other apostles like, like Thomas. And, and Thomas, for many of you, you're a doubter, you're a skeptic. And you say, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. Let Thomas' testimony be yours. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it until I see it with my own eyes. I want to touch the hands and the feet of Jesus. Then Jesus appeared to him. And he said, go ahead, touch it, touch and see. And he touched the hands and he fell down at Jesus' feet and he looked up and he worshiped him, my Lord and my God. For those of you who are skeptics, you're doubters, listen to the testimony of Thomas. Jesus is alive. And then he says 500 people. Right, that's a very large crowd. That's about what redemption would have today. And just imagine if what Jesus walks in on the side stage, he's like, hey guys, I'm here, ready to preach a sermon. Right, you're like, that's gonna be the best sermon. Probably a lot better than this one because it's Jesus' sermon. <laughs> and then you can say, you can go find him. You can go see those 500 people. They're still alive. They'll be able to tell you. He was dead, then he was buried, and then all of a sudden he was preaching a sermon to us. It was incredible. He says he appeared, and then he says he appeared to James. Okay, James is Jesus' half-brother. James and Jesus, they, they had a mother named Mary, adopted father named Joseph, and they had several other brothers and sisters. There's James and there's Jude. And during the life of Jesus, they didn't believe in him. They thought he was crazy. It's like, oh, there goes my brother again, thinking he's God. And, and they, they oftentimes were trying to get Jesus to come back home. So there's one occasion where Jesus is over preaching and he's talking about how he's the Lord of the Sabbath and that he's come down from heaven. And they're like, hey, James, you got to go get your brother. Woohoo, he's crazy. So James goes and he gets him. He's like, all right, Jesus, you got to come home. We're going to make you a sandwich, get you some chamomile tea, maybe a Xanax. It's going to be okay. We're going to get you some help. They didn't believe in Jesus. And then all of a sudden, something changed in their life. They watched their brother die and then all of a sudden, he's standing right in front of them. What would it take for you to begin to worship your brother as God? Just think about that. I mean, beating death is the only thing that they could do to be able to get them to think that they were, were God. Like, my sister goes to redemption. Like, she would tell you, Byron, no. Many wooden spoons were broken in our house. That's not how this is going down. 
But Jesus' own family eventually begins to worship him as God. Mary and James, they are in the first church. James and Jude become pastors. And then James and Jude go on to write two books of the Bible bearing their name, talking about how Jesus is the resurrected Lord, living Savior, God, Christ, and King. And even his own family eventually begins to worship him as God because he appeared to them and they encountered the resurrected living Lord Jesus. How do you make, how do you explain this? How do you explain the change in the history and the veracity of these claims? For those of you who are skeptics and you're listening to me on this, you must deal with this. You must wrestle with this because the truth is, is we don't believe in the Bible because of faith. We believe in the resurrection because it's fact. These are real, true, historical, verifiable claims. And if you don't believe me, go look it up for yourself. And if you don't do it, it's because you're lazy and you don't care. If God is real, it changes everything. If this is true, it changes everything. If he beat death, it changes everything. If he is alive, then it changes everything. And you owe it to yourself, and you owe it to your family, and you owe it to your kids, and you owe it to the rest of your life to figure this out. And if you don't, then you don't care. Real, true, historical, verifiable facts. And I went to college too, by the way. facts that Jesus is God, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus appeared. And you could be hearing this and you're like, okay, Byron, I'll give you those things, but what does this have to do with my life? Yeah, sure, we're talking theology, we're talking history, but what does this have to do with me? Paul makes it very personal here. He says, if you don't believe them, if you don't believe Jesus' own words, if you don't believe what Jesus did in their life, then maybe you'll believe what he did in mine. The next thing he says is this, I believe in the resurrection because Jesus has changed my life. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace towards me is not in vain. See, today we'd hear this and we think, sure, that's Paul. He's the apostle Paul. He's a missionary traveling church planter. He wrote two thirds of the Bible. Yeah, sure, Paul would be able to say those things. But the truth is that we didn't actually meet him as Paul. The first time we meet him is in Acts chapter five and his name's Saul and he's not planting churches, he's persecuting them. That he doesn't love Jesus, he hates Jesus and he's overseeing the murder of an early church deacon whose name is Stephen. And Paul, he oversaw this execution. And as Paul is hating the church and he's persecuting the church and he's capturing and killing Christians, he's trying to put an end to the church. He's trying to stop the movement that happened after the resurrection. Paul devoted his entire life to stomping out this resurrection movement. And then something happened in this man's life. Something changed everything from this man. How does he go from being someone who hates Jesus to someone who loves him in just an instant, in just a moment? How does his life change in one single moment? He had an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, everything in his life changes. He goes from Saul to Paul, from a murderer to a worshiper, that his past has been forgiven, his future has been set before him, that everything in this man's life, it begins to change because he had a resurrected, he had an encounter with the living Lord Jesus because the truth is Jesus changes lives. 
And here's how he does it. One word. The death, burial, resurrection can be summed up in one word. Paul says it right here. He says, but by the grace of of God. I am what I am. I'm not who I used to be. I'm someone new. I'm not the things that I used to do. I am a new person. I am not the way that I used to live. I am a new way. I have a new life and I am what I am. And here's how his grace towards me is not in vain. One word, grace undeserved, unmerited favor that comes from God. You can't earn it because Jesus, he paid for it. You don't deserve it because Jesus stood in your place for it. And when he gives you grace, he gives you grace. You can't win it. You can't lose it. It's yours. He's given it freely to you. All you have to do is to receive the grace that he gives. And grace changes everything. And Paul says, the grace he gave towards me is not in vain. That he didn't waste one drop of blood for you. That you're not pointless. You're not worthless. He says, I am unworthy, but by the cross and the grace of God, I am what I am, and my worth is now in him, and his grace is not in vain. He never wasted one drop of blood on you. He didn't waste one minute in that grave on you. He didn't waste one moment appearing to other people on you. When Jesus paid it all, it's all finished because Jesus changes lives. He changes who we are. So I got good news for you, Redemption. Here is the good news, is that Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive, and he is risen. That your sins are forgiven because he is risen. Your past is gone because he is risen. Death has been defeated because he is risen. Hell has been overcome because he is risen. The grave has been undone because he is risen. And we have a savior because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. Today, if you are not a Christian... If you have not put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus or the gospel that you believe in and you're standing for it, today I would say do not harden your hearts towards this day. The most important day in the history of the world could be the most important day for the rest of your life. Give your life to Jesus. He paid it all for you. He went to the cross for you. He gave his life for you. Quit holding on to it and just surrender it over to him. Do not harden your hearts towards him. All he wants from you is your sin. That's it. He's asking from you the very worst you have. Just give him the worst, and he will give you the best. Give him your sin. He will give you his son, Jesus Christ, in your place for those sins, and you can be forgiven and have new life with him today. Don't wait. And those of you who are Christians, don't forget Don't forget what Jesus accomplished. He says, brothers, I need to remind you. Why do you need to be reminded? Because you forget what Jesus has done for you. 
Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Jesus.